0: Thank you very much. I now request Nanda Kumar, who is an accomplished and most sought after vocalist from Bangalore. With his mellifluous voice, he has established himself as a performer at a very young age. He sings extensively for classical dance performances and devotional bhajan concerts. He has recently started a YouTube musical series, Loka Samastha Sukhino Bhavantu, with the sole intention of spreading devotional and spiritual music. I now request him to sing us Uh, podcast which relate to environment. Namaste. Mm
1: Namaste. (laughs) मुमु मु मु पुरमे Samudravasani Devi Parvatasthana Mandalayas Samudravasani Devi Vishnu Patri Namastu नमस्तुभ्यं Vishnu Patri Namastu Ben Sadhasparshan Kshamaswami Wie eine मश्वमे आदर oh पृथ्वी पर्याद्रता Devi Vishnuna Devi Vishnuna Devi 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 Vishnuna Vishnu Nādhata
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Uh, one of the reasons, um, one of the things that we want to do in this conference is um, is to bring back this concept of devotion because we we tend to over-intellectualize uh, everything and in the process, we forget that we are a living tradition and uh, a living tradition, we, we have to show our devotion. And one of the reasons, one of the ways in which we can bring out sustainability and bring back. Uh, uh, sustainability is through expression of our devotion. So if any of you um, know, uh, would like to sing, would like to chant any Vedamantras, mantras, or would like to sing, sing any slokas, today, in the evening, tomorrow, please reach out to us privately, and before the start of the session, we would be most happy to uh, uh, have you uh, sing for us. Thank you very much. I uh, now warmly welcome all of you to this conference on indigenous environmentalism. Um, my uh, I'm co curating this. Uh, curator, chief curator is Sri Nagraj Garu. He's the director for Inter Gurkula University Center at uh,
1: uh,
0: Indic Academy. And this is a conference that we had uh, conceptualized about six months earlier. Uh, and we called that at that time Indic and Pagan uh, Environmentalism. We wanted to bring together both the Indic thought and the pagan thought, which is seeing a revival world over. And we had scheduled the conference, but uh, we focused primarily at that time on uh, scholars. Uh, the response was not so encouraging because we tried uh, globally a uh, lot of uh, uh, scholars, but it did not happen. Uh, finally, we, we, uh, we did uh, schedule the conference in the end of March on 27th of March in collaboration with IDMCA. But uh, because of COVID, we had to uh, cancel that. And now uh, we are doing this conference uh, online. Uh, We are now shifting all our conferences and events online. We had a successful conference uh, last month on rituals. We also had uh, a webinar with uh, Professor Balgangadra uh, uh, this month on 3rd of May. And uh, this conference is scheduled for two days. We will start with a presentation by Nandita Krishna, on Hinduism and nature. I'd like to briefly give you a background about uh, Professor Nandita Krishna. She is she's a historian, environmentalist, and a writer based in Chennai with a PhD in ancient Indian culture. She's been a director, professor, and research guide for the PhD program of the C.P. Ramaswamy Ayat Institute of Indological Research, and is currently the president of CP Ramaswamy Iyer Foundation. She is a prolific writer who has authored books such as Balaji Venkateshwara, Ganesha, Hinduism and Nature, Sacred Plants of India, Sacred Animals of India, among others, and research papers and popular articles on Indian art, religion, and environment. She is the winner of several awards, including Nari Shakti Puraskara. Sri Ratna, an outstanding woman of Asia, and has a delit from Vidya Sagar University, West Bengal. With that, we would like to invite you, we we'll invite uh, Nandita Khaddi to make a presentation on Hinduism and nature. Nagaraj Garu, would you like to say a few words?
2: Yeah, uh, just to uh, start, initiate the program, let me uh... Just uh, give you a feel of how it is going to be. We have uh, a galaxy of scholars. Literally, it's a galaxy. We have uh, uh, highly uh, senior uh, scholars and uh, accomplished activists uh, and uh, uh, highly learned uh, participants, though very young, uh, in the field. We have a Vedic scholar, a Shastrik Vakyartha scholar like Jamala Madhaka Srinivas Garu. And an uh, uh, IT professional but learned in Vedic side like uh, G.V. Shenshankar Garu. And we have a very great professor like uh, Rana P. D. Singh Ji uh, from Varanasi, very well known in the field of uh, sacred geography and environmentalism architecture, city architecture. We have a very senior journalist like Vitalsi Natakarni Ji who has already joined today. And uh, we have uh, senior activists like uh, Viva Thirmanoji and uh, Rahul Goswamiji. And we have a senior professor like Michael Dyanenoji, who is uh, very well ac- accomplished in this field. And we have a stellar combination of people uh, like Professor Vishwadluri, Luri, Professor Jaydee Bakshi from uh, United States. We have a very uh, well ac- accomplished uh, uh, American scholar called Edward Butler, who uh, uh, has done a lot of work on polytheism. And uh, it's going to be a really, really uh, a stellar combination of scholars and activists. Please stay tuned and wait for a very great feast on environmentalist literature.
0: Actually, the, the boost for this conference again came back when we repositioned it and uh, for saviors also. So we the, the conference is for scholars and saviors. So we have uh, very interesting people lined up. In fact, Tarun Chabra, she, he's from Nilgiris. He's worked with the Toda Landscape there. He's written a book. He's also joining us. Then we have Shubhendu Sharma, who has worked uh, on uh, Miyawaki uh, forestation. So we have a very eclectic uh, uh, range of activists also. Yeah. Uh, over to you, Nandita Ji.
3: I think that we have taken up the subject at a very appropriate moment because we have not respected Mother Earth, Bhumi Devi, who has given us everything we have, including the plastics, which we are now rejecting. But even that has come out of the earth. And we have not respected her, we have polluted the air, we have. uh, destroyed habitats, forests, and so on. We have uh, killed animals. We all know that this coronavirus has come from wet markets. So I think this is a very appropriate moment to take up a subject like this, which is about Hinduism and nature, on which I have worked for many years. Can we start the slides, please? Um, Okay. Hinduism and nature. This is a book that I have written. It was a follow-up to two other books of mine about which I'll tell you later. But I found that everything about Hinduism is all about nature. Next. Next slide. You know that at the beginning and end of every ritual, we recite a shanti mantra. There are many, many shanti mantras, I'm going to recite only one Om Dhyao Shanti, Antariksham Shanti, Ritivi Shanti, Rapaha Shanti, Aushadeya Shanti, Vanaspateya Shanti, Vishve Deva Shanti, Brahma Shanti, Sarvam Shanti, Shanti Reva Shanti, Sama Shanti Redhi, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. I recited it fast because I want to get through the slides quickly. And what does it say? It says, may peace radiate in the whole sky and in the vast ethereal space. Once These are the Panchabhutas. May peace reign all over this earth in water, in all the herbs, the Aushadeya, and the forest, the Vanaspateya. May peace flow over the whole universe. May peace be in the Supreme Being. May peace exist in all creation and peace alone. May peace flow into us. Own peace, peace, peace. Shanti, shanti, shanti. So when we start, begin and end our ritual, we do not say, oh, dear God, please look after me, my parents, my children, my grandchildren, and so on. We ask for peace. We ask for the various forces of nature to be at peace. Because if they are at peace, automatically human beings, animals, everything else which has life will be at peace and will be in a happier situation. Next, please. So, environmental protection is dharma or the law of righteousness. Now, there's been a lot of controversy about what is dharma. And today, dharma has become religion. Mera dharm ye hai, to, tera dharm aisa hai, that kind of thing. But dharma is not religion. Dharma is the law of righteousness. And the basis of Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain culture is dharma or righteousness, incorporating duty, cosmic law, and justice. It is sanatana. Sanatana means eternal, or it is big without beginning or end. Righteousness is not something that is right today and wrong tomorrow. It is endless. And it supports the whole universe. Every person must act for the general welfare of the earth. If I act for my welfare, you can be sure that it won't work. Because unless we act for everybody's welfare, for the welfare of the earth, I cannot be happy. So the Mahabharata is a beautiful saying. I'm only going to repeat the translations dharma is meant for the well-being of all living creatures hence that by which the welfare of all living creatures is sustained that for sure is dharma so i think this is a very beautiful concept of dharma and it is a concept which we are not really that sure about and i think the mahabharata um Definition tells us exactly what is dharma. Next, please. In Vedic literature, all of nature was in some way divine. It was part of an indivisible life force which united the world of humans, animals and plants. The Vedas themselves are dedicated to a variety of pantheistic deities called devas. Now, what are devas, shining ones? Dia, that's what it comes from. And who are these shining ones? Indra, the rain, the the moon, the sun, Surya, the sun, and the moon, and dawn, and so on. So these are all the stars in the feminine. These are all forces, natural forces, which are beyond human knowledge. In those days, and even today, we really don't know why the rain comes and why it doesn't come. Everybody says it's going to be five days late. We think it will be on time. It's finally, you may have a few instruments, but even the meteorological departments go wrong. So these are natural forces beyond human control. We cannot say rain, rain today. It doesn't happen. So man, human beings had to recognize what powers of nature they could not control and were thus compelled to resort to prayer to win the cooperation of the winds and the rains to ensure the regularity of the monsoon, to control earthquakes because the Vedas were written in North India where the Indian plate meets the Eurasian plate and there are constantly earthquakes in that area. Forest fires all over India, we have a problem and all major elements of nature. So when we ask for peace, we are saying, please do not cause earthquakes, do not cause uh, floods and things beyond our control, do not cause fire, and so on. So these are the shining ones, Indra who was rain, Agni who was fire, Vishnu was the all-pervading sun, as was Surya, Fushan was agriculture, Ushas was, was dawn, Vyos Pitra was the father of the shining ones. Prithvi, mother earth, the rivers were sacred. Everything connected with nature was sacred. And we, in the past, protected nature. We had respect for nature. The concept of the sacred environment was established in the Vedas themselves. And when we say the Vedas are unchangeable, immutable. They're permanent. Yes, because nothing has changed. Since then, we have not got control over the sun or the rain or anything else. Next, please. 5,000 years ago, the sages of the Rig Veda showed a clear appreciation of the natural world and its ecology, the importance of the environment and the management of natural resources. Veda dedicates a whole hymn to the rivers, Nadi Stuti Sukta, that is completely to the rivers. And Atharva Veda, Book 12, has a hymn to the earth, Prithvi Sukta, which consists of 63 stanzas in praise of Mother Earth and nature and human dependence on the earth. And finally, creation. I mean, we come from a background where even Creation was questioned and even annihilated. Annihilated, nasadiya sukta. India's tradition has been described as India's tradition of skeptical questioning and unself-conscious humility before the great cosmic mysteries. In the beginning, says the Rihadaranya Upanishad, Brahmanda Upanishad. In the beginning, there was the self alone. He transformed himself into man and woman. Later, he transformed himself into other creatures, bipeds and quadrupeds. In this way, he created everything that exists on earth, in water and in the sky. He realized, I am indeed creation, for I produced all this. And then goes creation. Next, please. The Pancha Mahabhuta. Right at the beginning, when we had the Shanti mantra, we saw, heard the words, it was Prithvi Shanti, Apashanti, Vayu Shanti, bayu shanti uh, everything. The primordial or cosmic matter of nature is made up of five elements. What are these elements? Prithvi or earth, Vayu, air, e, Agni, fire or energy in contemporary terms. Apa is water and akasha is space. These are the mahabhuta, and their proper balance and harmony are essential for the well-being of humankind. And maintain, maintenance of this harmony is a dharma or righteous duty. So we come back to dharma, righteousness, which is the maintenance of peace and well-being among all the various forms of the element that make up the earth. Make up not just the earth, the whole universe. In terms of the human body, this is likened to the five senses. Space is regarded as sound, air as touch, fire as color, water as taste, and earth as smell. Next, please. The Maitrayani Upanishad has a beautiful analogy of Brahman as a great tree with the roots above and its branches below. The branches are the earth, water, air, fire, and space. And the fusion of these produce fire. These four elements, air, water, sky, and earth, originate from the same source. When they move downward, earth was produced. Later, they caused the birth of, birth of Srishti, or creation, and Prakriti, or nature. The harmonious coexistence of these elements is essential for the well-being of life on earth. Nature is just an indivisible part of existence. The existence of all beings, not just human beings, animals, plants, and so on. The earth and and its inhabitants are part of this highly organized cosmic order called rita. And any disruption results in a breakdown of peace and the natural balance. And we are living through it now. I mean, I'm wearing uh, gloves and I was wearing a mask a few minutes ago. All these are totally unnatural in a city like Chennai, which is too hot for gloves and masks. The supreme being of Brahman is the underlying power of unity pervading all creation forests and groves, trees and plants, animals, rivers, water bodies, mountains, gardens, towns, precincts, and seas. I'm going to try and rush through it a little faster. Finally, Mother Earth is acknowledged as the world itself. Oh, Mother Earth, you are the universe and we are but your children. Grant us the ability to overcome our differences and live live peacefully and in harmony. Let us be cordial and gracious in our relationship with other human beings. Hinduism has a definite code of environmental ethics. According to Hinduism, humans may not consider themselves above nature, nor can they claim to rule over other forms of life. Traditionally, the Hindu attitude is therefore in respectful towards nature. We cannot go forth and conquer the wilderness. The wilderness came before us and the wilderness owns the earth. 5,000 years ago, the sages of the Atharva Veda said, the earth's attributes are for everybody and no single group or nation has special authority over it. The hymn also describes the earth as the mother of all species living on it. Let the whole of humanity speak the language of peace and harmony and let us live in accord with each other then we would have a perfect world. Even pollution was known in those days, Pradushan. It was once a punishable offence. Kautilya in his Arthashastra says, punishment should be awarded to those who throw dust and muddy water on the roads. I don't know what Kautilya would say if he came to our cities now. A person who throws inside the city the carcass of animals must be punished. And the kind of pollution we are doing I wish we had a here today. Environmental pollution of Vikriti was identified several millennia ago. And the Mahabharata says: from <laughs> two types of diseases occur in human beings. The first is related to the body and the other to the mind. And both are interrelated. Coolness, warmth, and air, these are three virtues of the body. When they are balanced, the body is free from disease. And finally, Charaka, in his Charaka Samhita says, was prescient, he says, due to pollution of weather, several types of diseases will come up and they will ruin the country. Therefore, he says, collect the medicinal plants before the beginning of terrible diseases and change in the nature of the earth. My dear friends, are we seeing that today? In Tamil literature, next please, we have the concept of the Aindatane, which is the five fold division of the geographical landscape. And they're very clearly defined. And this would go for every part of India Kurinji or mountains, which is presided over by Lord Karthikeya, Mulle or forests, Marudam or agricultural lands, Natal or the coastal regions, and Pale or the desert. What is important is each tinnei was described with its flowers, trees, animals, birds, climate, ruling deity, and all other geographical features. So it's very important that we recognize that our ancients knew so much. Next, Hinduism has a definite code of environmental ethics, as I mentioned earlier. They cannot consider themselves above nature nor can they claim to rule over other forms of life. As we know, this pandemic has come out of the wet markets of Wuhan, where we have totally misappropriated and ill-treated animals. They are not ours for us to use. There is a very strong and intimate relationship between the biophysical ecosystem and economic institutions, which are held together by cultural relations. So I would like to just quote from the Atharva Veda, the earth's attributes are for everybody and no single group or nation has special authority over it. I'm not quoting all the Sanskrit, just reading of the English. From him, all the seas and mountains, from him flow rivers of every kind, from him are all the herbs and their juices too, by which together with the elements, the inner soul is upheld. And finally, the Bhagavad Gita, the famous lines, Vidya, Vinaya, Sattva, brahmani gavyastini. Those who are wise and humble treat equally the Brahmin, the cow, the elephant, the dog, and the dog-eater. And as long as the earth is able to maintain mountains, trees, says the Durga Sapta until then the human race and its progeny will be able to survive. The family of mother earth vasudeva kutumbakam must promote sarva bhuta hita and that is the beneficiar benefit to every kind of life and hindu traditions acknowledge that all life forms human animal and plant are equal and sacred and thus even appropriately placed to take on contemporary concerns like deforestation intensive farming of animals, global warming, and climate change, all of which have caused our problems. So all nature was sacred, and what happened? We had sacred forests in ancient India. Today, all that remains of that are the sacred groves, this nandavanama, the sacred gardens, the sacred trees, which are today just the sthalavrikshas, rivers, water bodies, animals, mountains, and so on. Next, please. We will start with the forests, because without the forest, there is no life for people or animals. In ancient India, there was a close symbiotic relationship between people and nature, and the whole country was thickly forested. Look at the Indus Valley Seas. You see animals like rhinoceros, tigers, elephants. Can you imagine those animals in the Punjab today? No, once upon a time, the whole country was full of forest. And these animals roamed everywhere. So we see them in the in the, in the Saraswati Seals. The Vedas, of course, have a clear appreciation of the natural world and its ecology. And it's complete, the Vedas are completely uh, being to nature. Forests were places of retreat, a source of inspiration. For all Vedic literature was revealed, revealed to the sages who lived in the forests. Next, please. The Rigveda says, May the mountains, the waters, the spouses of the gods, the plants, heaven and earth. Consentient with the forest lord, Vanaspati, heaven and earth preserve for us all those riches. Aranyaka, Aranya means forest. And early Vedic literature includes the Aranyakas which represent earlier sequels, the speculations of the philosophy behind the rituals and were composed by sages living in the forest. One of the most beautiful hymns of the Veda is, is dedicated to Ar- Aranyani, the goddess of the forest. We never see Aranyani again in later Sanskrit literature or even modern Hinduism, yet she pervades everywhere. Prakriti, or nature, is Aranyani. Bhudevi, the earth goddesses Aranyani. Annapurna, the giver of food. Amman, Devi, they're all (laughs) forms of Aranyani. Next, please. Rama's entire journey from Ayodhya to Lanka was through forests. And he stays in four different types of forests. Now, you know, plants are very important for locating a text. There are certain historians who will try and say that the Vedas were written in Afghanistan and God knows where well elsewhere. When I did take my book, Sacred Plants of India, we noted down every animal and every plant. And all of them belonged to the North Indian plains. They could not have grown in Afghanistan, which has a temperate climate. Not even the Kashmiri, Chinkaras, and all were there. It was all completely what you see in North India. Similarly, when we wanted to find out whether the Ramayana was true or false, when uh, Rama goes into Dandakaranya, Haradwaja says, don't go, there are lions and tigers. Now we all think lions and tigers together, no, rubbish. Lions are in west and tigers are in northeast and south. But in Vedka, there is a painting 10,000 years old of a lion and a tiger sitting together. And after that, we did a full study, starting from Chitrakuta to Dandakaranya to Panchavati, Kishkinda. And we listed all the plants over there now and what were mentioned in the Ramayana. And there is absolutely no difference. So that is how much our people know and that is the great forests of india there were three categories please there were three types of forests tapovana mahavana and Shrivana. tapovana was a refuge for meditation and abhayaranya or sanctuary where kings commoners sought the guidance of the great rishis the mahavana was the great forest in which all species could find refuge Maybe we would call it a national park or a wildlife sanctuary today. But there was absolutely freedom for all animals, all everybody, people, animals, tribes, they all lived together. And the Shrivana was the forest, which was which provided prosperity. That is, people could take produce from this, the Shrivana and was maintained by temples. Exclusively for religious uses. Next. The Arthashastra describes even more forest types because by the time of Chandragupta Maurya, we have more, you have the Mrigavana, forest of deer, Dravyavana, economic forest, Pakshivana, bird sanctuaries, Pashuvanā, Vyalavana, forests of wildlife reserved for tigers and wild animals and Hastivana sanctuary for elephants. And vana of course, was for forest produce. Forests, deforestation and illicit tree felling was punishable with fines and maybe even uh, imprisonment if the crime was bad enough. Ecological balance was maintained by the appointment of forest managers. So there's nothing we are doing that wasn't done before. Protection of different species of animals was an important duty of the state. And these rules were generally enforced till about the seventh century. Even today, I'd like to uh, tell you that towns and villages in India are still named after plants and animals. Like you have Vrindavan, named after the or Tulsi plant. And in Chennai, you have Mailapur, which is named after the mail or the peacock. The most famous forest was, of course, the Naimisharanya, where the Mahabharata was narrated, where Vishnu killed Durjaya, where Lava and Krishna chant the Ramayana to their father. Bhagavata Mahapurana was recited here. Sri Satya Narayana Vrta Katha originated here. And when the Pandavas visited, this forest, during the exile, Balarama visited it during his pilgrimage, during the Purukshetra war. And here is where Tulsidas composed his Ram So I think there's something very magical about the Naimishar Next. So what do we have left of these Tapovana? We have forests. We have preserved forests and so on. But there are sacred groves. Where I come from, Tamil Nadu, we have a tradition that every village has its own sacred gro- grove. In Tamil Nadu, it's called Kovalkari. In different states, they have different names. We've come to that. But this is the home of the local flora and fauna, a mini biosphere reserve. It's very, very important because the rich plant life retains subsoil water. It has a unique form of biodiversity conservation whereby religion and traditions are used to conserve the ecology as a natural heritage. It is an area of conservation as well as a spiritual retreat because it belongs to the Amman or the Devi or the deity of the forest. And this is the single most important heritage of the ancient culture of India because this is much older than our temples anything. It's something that has come down over the ages. The tradition goes back to food-gathering societies who venerated nature and natural resources. Don't forget, we all are descended from food-gathering societies. And we, our ancestors venerated nature and natural resources before, of course, people like us came, cut down all the trees and put up multi-story buildings. These are the tapovanas, where the ashrams of the rishis were located, and there, there were significant reservoirs of biodiversity conserving unique species of plants, insects, and animals. Even today, the plants and animals in the sacred groves, are some of them are not found outside the grove, and each grove is unique. So wherever you live, please find out what are the groves. So here is a map of India, and the distribution of sacred groves is given over here the, this is what cpr environmental education center has documented there may be many many more there will be many more next and over here this is uh, when you i'll show you the website at the end uh, where you can go and find out a lot more like andhra pradesh The name of the the term for sacred grove is Pavitravana. We have documented 677. So if you go there, you will find out the district, the village. I just saw a question. How can the youth of the country, what are we doing? What have we been doing for the last 30 years? We have been restoring degraded groves. We have been preserving groves. Please go back and do it. And don't go and plant coconut trees in your sacred groves plant only the local species. That is what I would like to say. Next. So just as we have uh, uh, forests of which we have the sacred groves left over, we had nandavana or sacred gardens, nandavana which were maintained to provide flowers for the temple. These were also places for meditation and healing. And those of you who are temple goers, you will know that very often at least I have, I've sat inside a a Nandavanam and just meditated. It's a very peaceful place. There are many. Turumala, Orissa has so many. Vrindavan is itself a big Nandavanam. And of course, there's Madurai Kavi Nandavanam near Trichy, which is a very famous Nandavanam. Next. Then we come to sacred plants and trees. Now, the oldest form of known worship in India was pro- not just India, all over the world, was probably the worship of the tree. In the Indus scenes, we find one uh, scene where there is a pipal tree with a, a figure inside it, probably the spirit of the tree. And before it, a man bends in worship. Below are seven figures who may be the Saptarishi. So this is the oldest form of worship. And you find it again and again. You find the people especially, people and the Khejalli, which have been uh, immortalized on the various seeds. So the value of plants was known. They knew that Tutsi was good for general health, people for its air-purifying value. Don't forget that people produces... Um oxygen 24 hours a day, which is why the Buddha probably got enlightenment beneath the people. The Dakshina Murti, the great teacher, sits beneath the people with his students. He also sits between beneath the Banyan tree and so on. Now, what is left of these sacred plants? What is left are the sthalavrikshas. These are the trees that first sheltered the deity beneath the sky. Long before temples came into existence, what was the deity? A tree and beneath it the temple. Then in time as the temple was built the tree became secondary and was worshipped along with other parts of nature and so it became the of the temple or the sacred tree. So we have many such Instances like Tulsi, rice, just got a Sannapurna herself, and so on. Next, please. Here you have the Pipal Tree Puja, you have the, <coughs> excuse me, Mata Savitri Puja, Tulsi Puja, and then the Kejali. Kejali, you see in the Indus Valley scenes, and of course, it was immortalized by the Bishnois Guru Jamboji, who said he would be born in every chinkar ivory gazelle in the forest and uh, said that you must never cut a kejali tree and actually the whole Chippa movement starts when 363 women went and hugged the tree and they were cut down for doing so. Next. So why are plants sacred? First there is a close association with the tree for example bilva is associated with Lord Shiva, mean with Devi, Tulsi with Krishna. They may shelter an object of worship. Some plants are believed to have originated from the gods, like the flame of the forest. Please don't mix it up with the other one, the um, similar tree, I forget the name, but flame of the forest, butia monosperma is the red flower. Then the Rudraksha, some plants became sacred through what might happened. Yeah, somebody has just said Gulmohar. Correct, Mr. Bora. It was, please don't mix up the palasha with the gulmohor. And uh, some plants of course became sacred because of what happened in their proximity like the people under which the Buddha attained enlightenment and plants with an important social or ecological role, like the Khejri of the Bishnois. Next. So ancient Indians knew about the ecological I mean, look at the knowledge. They knew that the people produced oxygen 24 hours a day, which another tree didn't. They knew the medicinal value of plants. They knew the economic value of plants, and so on. So let us... Let us just thank our ancestors for knowing so much. It is a knowledge which we may or may not have today. Next. Then we'll come to the next one waters. Uh, water and water bodies have been traditionally held sacred for the following reasons. Of course, water is uh, irreplaceable when it comes to purity, sustainer of life. And therefore it is indispensable for rituals and rites but it is also a source of aquatic biodiversity and almost all rivers lakes springs are attributed to and associated with the local deities. most indian rivers are believed to be divine manifestations and have been worshipped as goddesses And polluting water is such a great skin, sin, according to Sanskrit texts. If you please have time, go and see it and you'll never ever throw anything in the near, in the water in future. Next. So there are three forms of sacred waters. First is, of course, the river. You have the Sindhu and the Panchapa. It's uh, five tributaries. You have the Ganga, Yamuna, Saraswati. Godavari, Narmada, Kavedri, Kaveri, Brahmaputra, which is a male river. And many local rivers are identified with the Ganga. For example, the Kuam in Chennai, where I live. At one time, it is said that bathing in the Kuam was as sacred as bathing in the Ganga. Of course, today it's the most polluted, horrible river in the world. But at one time, it, it was equivalent to the Ganga. It is, all the rivers are praised in the Rigveda, Veda, Nadi Stuti Sutta, and the Veda says that the waters are the foundation of this universe. Waters are called Tirtha or sacred, and they appear as minor deities. In fact, in many temples, you will find the doorway flanked by Ganga Adhyamna. Ganga represented by standing on the uh, Crocodile and Yamuna on the tortoise. Each river has an origin myth and the pilgrimage sites you'll find are along the river banks. Next, then we come to the sacred lakes. It's very interesting. I went to Mansarovar, I went to Kailas, and there I saw why they say Ravan bathed in the Rakshastal and Mansarovar was the cleaner one because Mansarovar is fresh water. Rakshasthan is salt water and there is a channel connecting the two. And it's very interesting. The salt water never goes into Mansarovar. The fresh water sometimes goes into Rakshasthan. Then in Kurukshetra, of course, we have sacred lakes. You also have artificial lakes, Pushkar. And the many step wells, the Vav, Bauni, Pushkarni. And in the south, you have the Yeris. Now, maintenance of these lakes is a dharma. Everywhere you will find that it is regarded as a duty. It's not something you do for pleasure. Desilting is a duty. And not only was it a duty, the silt that came out was used for making deities like the Ganesh Chaturthi in summer months all over the Deccan from Maharashtra to the south where you have the tradition of uh, having artificial tanks and lakes and so on, they had to be desilted in summer, the same silt used for making the Ganeshas. In those days, they didn't make the Ganesha and paint them or make them with plaster of Paris. They made the Ganesha and at the end of the Puja, whether it's three days or five days or uh, 11 days, you put it back into the water. Bengal also. (laughs) Next, then you have the sacred temple tanks. Now these are slightly different because these were rainwater harvesting structures and these were used for maintaining the groundwater table. So they were not supposed to be used by all in Sanji. They were very medicinal because the Abhisheka Jalam goes into the sacred temple tanks. And they supported also a variety of life forms and were maintained by temples. Next. So I mentioned uh, this is the Pushkar Lake in Rajasthan, the Rani Kivar. Next. Here you have the sacred versus the profane. I told you about the uh, channel connecting the over, which is on the right, it's a perfect, it's round, so it's regarded as the sun and the moon. And it's very interesting that the two are connected only with a channel, and yet the salt water never goes into the fresh water. Next, please. Then we come to sacred animals. India's greatest contribution to world thought is the concept of ahimsa. In thought, world, and action. Killing animals has been prohibited since the Vedic period. And the Yajur Veda says no person should kill animals who are helpful to all. By serving them, one should obtain heaven. Now, many people ask me, what about animal sacrifice? Don't forget that the Vedas were, were a time when there were people who were living, who were also living a very primitive life they believed in animal sacrifice but there were also people who thought greatly in fact for those of you who are vegans you'll be interested to know that the first time first mention of not touching the cow's milk is in the rigveda where he, where the rishi says do not lord whoever uh, takes away the milk which is meant for the calf cut off his head So that is how much they thought about it in those days. The term ahimsa is an important spiritual doctrine shared by Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, which implies the total avoidance of harm to any living creature by thought, word, or deed. It has been described as a multidimensional concept inspired by the belief that the supreme being lives in all human or animal life. So, since we believe in birth, death, and rebirth, we can be born as an animal or as a human being, whatever, because it is the same soul, the same atma that we all share. Therefore, to hurt another being is to open oneself to karmic repercussions. Next. So, here's the statement. The Rigveda, the Yathudhana, who fills himself with the flesh of man, he who fills himself with the flesh of horses or of other animals, and he who steals the milk of the cow, Lord, cut off their heads with your flame. It's amazing that what is very modern and vegan and all today was to, said thousands of years ago. And Atharva Veda says the earth was created for the enjoyment of. Bipeds and quadrupeds, birds, animals and all other creatures, not humans alone. And the earliest reference to the idea of non-violence to animals or or Pashu Ahimsa comes in the Yajurveda. The Chandogya Upanishad bars violence against all creatures and the practitioner of Ahimsa is said to escape from the cycle of birth, death and rebirth. And ahimsa, along with satya, arjavam, danam, tapaha, is one of the five essential virtues. So ahimsa as an ethical concept started evolving in the Vedas, the Rig Veda, the Veda, and became increasingly central to the Upanishads. Of course, it was taken up by two great philosophers of ancient India, the Buddha and Mahavira and taken further. So I have a few more quotes over here. I'm not going to read all of them except to read Albert Schweitzer who says, there is a hardly there hardly exists in the literature of the world a collection of maxims in which we find so much of lofty wisdom. Like the Bhagavad Gita, the Kural, the Tirukural of desires inner freedom from the world and a mind free from hatred. The reason I'm emphasizing it is because the Tur- Tirukural is all about compassion and non-killing. Non-killing of animals and compassion towards animals. So I think these are, this is a very important statement. Next. So how are animals given sanctity? Some were gods themselves, like Ganesha. We have Vagdev of Central India and Maharashtra, Bhagoba, who were deities. Now, why did Ganesha, why was he so important? Because the elephant is a keystone species. He was the remover of obstacles who gave a pathway through the forest because he was so big. He he could create pathways and that's, that's why he became Vigneshwara. Similarly, the tiger, was a prime ecological indicator. He was on top of the ecological pyramid. So many of the animals were made into Vahana, divine vehicles. Some like Hanuman and the dog. Hanuman was Rama's friend, the dog was Shiva's friend. Some were divine incarnations like Matsya, Purma Varaha, Narasama. And some were sacred because of their economic value, like the cow. It was essential for milk. The bull was a draft animal, so he became the Mahana of Shiva. And the black buck was essential for the survival of the cage reed which was the mainstay of the desert. Next, please. Some animals were a part of social history, like Mahisha, who was worshipped by the indigenous pastoral tribes. And uh, although we show the goddess Durga killing the Mahisha, it was really the conflict between the agricultural tribes and the pastoral tribes. Because in sh- the pastoral tribes like the Todas in North in South India, the Gones, the Maria Gones and many others were all herders of the buffalo. And the buffalo was slowly replaced in North India by the cow. But was not replaced, the cow was there. But slowly... As people wanted more land for agriculture, the buffalo was very much in the way. Then Mahisha lives on as the vehicle of Yama. Next. The totemic tradition was widespread in ancient India. I'm not going to read all these. And many clan names of animal origins, such as Maurya, More, In the Hindu tradition, animals are recognized as having feelings and passions like human beings. And by recognizing the divinity in animals, they were given a unique position which helped protect many species. Today, we see the tigers, everything dwindling. By giving them this sanctity, they were protected. The deification of several animals led to their protection, a safeguard that was lost in the medieval colonial and post-colonial periods when many animals were described as vermin and hunted to death. Next, there are three marga to the, to the moksha, to moksha, jnana, karma, and bhakti marga. A human being can consciously choose his path. Animals too rise above the limitations of their birth and need not become subjected, subject to the cycle of life, death and rebirth, they too can attain moksha. Several medieval saints, like all the people I have listed, Ramananda, Mirabai, etc., preached kindness to animals and vegetarianism. The greatest of all in this message was Guru Jambhoji, who died leaving behind guiding principles for his community and said that he would be reborn in every black buck. Thanks to him, the Bishnois have never allowed anyone to kill any animal or cut any green tree. Next, sacred mountains. So this is part of nature. They are a source of water, life, fertility, and they play a vital role in the conservation of local ecology because they are the watershed for collecting water especially. They are very comprehensive ecosystems and play a vital role in the survival of species like the snow leopard, so many others, even today. Our last sanctuaries are all in the hills and forests like the nilgiris. you have the tiger, the leopard, they're all preserved in the hills. Beliefs and attitudes held by people who revere them can function as powerful forces to preserve their integrity. Mountains highlight values that profoundly influence how people view and treat the world around. them. Next, Arunachala in Tiruvannamalai is awe-inspiring and represents the union of Shiva and Shakti. It's a tall mountain. You know, any mountain, it's tall. It's got rocks with strange shapes. They were a source of wonder. And most were places which only the gods could reach. Most of us can't walk up. Now, of course, you have roads and you're able to go up. But even today, Arunachala, there are no roads going up there. Some would designate next. Some were designated as sacred because of tradition. Like Mount Kailasa, which is in Tibet. It is the abode of Lord Shiva. And stands out as a compelling and uncannily symmetrical peak, like a child's drawing of a mountain. And it's very interesting that the sacred face uh, which faces the south is like Shiva's face. It has three horizontal lines above, a vertical line for the nose, and two more horizontal lines where the eyes should be. So I have seen it and it's quite amazing. And it's believed to be the axis mundi or the cosmic axis in Eastern beliefs. Now, was it the mythical Mount Meru? I don't know. But in, mythical, in Hindu cosmology, Meru is the sacred mountain with five peaks, which was regarded as the center of the physical, metaphysical, and spiritual universe. And till today, the mountain has remained unclimbed. Next. Many temples are designated as symbols of Mount Meru. And I'm only giving you the example of Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which is a recreation of Mount Meru and the various continents, the seven continents and oceans which surround it. Next. Next. So mountains, some may be associated with individual deities like Govartana in Vrindavan, which is associated with Krishna. Some are referred as places of spiritual attainment like Arunachala and Tiruvannamalai, Tirumala, Mukurti. Mukurti is so sacred to the Todas that they will not walk on it. And yet you and I go trekking in Mukurti. In order to be sustainable over the long term, environmental policies and programs need to take values and ideals of local people into account. Otherwise they will fail to enlist the local and popular support that they need to succeed for conservation. Next, I'm rushing through because I'm already, I've taken more time, Uh, sacred seeds. These are also, I'm mentioning this because seeds are very important. Today we have the problem of Monsanto and we have all these genetically modified seeds. But traditionally, seeds are closely connected with culture and farmers choose crop varieties depending on the available soil and water and genetic diversity the women play a major role they decide on the seeds to be preserved methods of conservation and propagation on the day of sowing women keep it before the, the seeds before the deity of the house and worship them interestingly this is not the modern high-yielding varieties like IR this and that, are never worshipped. It's only the traditional seeds. And women, before sowing begins, they worship the draft animals, that is the bullocks, the plough, and other equipment. Seeds play an important role in our rituals. You know, the Navadanya, in which which has to be placed before any ritual. And this has been a basis for Indian farming, they're a symbol of fertility, eternity, eternity, and sustenance. So conserving seeds is conserving biodiversity, knowledge of the seed, its utilization, it's conserving culture and sustainability. Before I conclude, I'd like to say something. Quote, Justice Vaidyanathan of the Tamil Nadu of the Madras High Court, He said that religious beliefs are protective of human civilization and the environment. He said, and I quote, our tradition and values passed down to us from our ancestors are not wrong beliefs. Today we all think, ah, all this is, uh, nothing is scientific, unscientific and so on. He says they're scientific, rational and logical. That is why they worship nature. Even now, many of them who follow our ancestral beliefs continue to do so as they have got abundant sanctity. And referring to people worshipping, all the Panchabhutahis, the learned judge said, it is not at all irrational. When nature gets sanctity, it will not be ruined. Thus, nature was protected in those days. However, in the name of rationality, religious taboos were violated. The result of which we suffer these days. So I think this is something very important that the judge said, and that we must always remember. Next, in our daily lives, we have we worship nature without realizing it. When we worship, when we have the festivals of Pongal, that is Sankranti, Pongal, Lohri, Bihu, we are worshiping the harvest. Fusion agriculture. When we have Diwali, Deepavali, Kartikei Deepak, we are worshipping Agni. When we have Onam, Vathukamma, we are worshipping flowers. And from morning, the kolam or the rangoli or the alpana is a form of worshipping. It's also feeding ants. I don't know if you're aware, it's made with rice flour, beautiful designs on the floor. And by doing it, Women are feeding the ants. When you encircle the people tree, you are carrying on a, a, a tradition of several thousand years and saying, please, why do they worship the people tree for children, for and so on? Because they are the ones who need the maximum enlightenment, education. We pour water over the tulsi because we know that it preserves us from coughs, colds, feed, feed and fevers. Why do we feed the crows? We say it's for our ancestors but do you know the crow being a scavenger keeps your front and backyard clean in case you don't have somebody to sweep and most people don't and why do we sweep the house only in daylight? You're not supposed to sweep in the evening. It's to protect insect life without whom we cannot be. To end i just like to say that the Atharva Veda says, next please, it is up to us, the progeny of Mother Earth, to live in peace and harmony with all others. O Mother Earth, you are the world for us, and we are your children. Let us speak in one accord. Then the divine is all, and all life is to be treated with reverence and respect of Mother Earth. I said it at the beginning, Vasudeva kutumbakam must promote Sarva Bhurta the welfare of all beings, people, animal, and trees. Forests and trees, fresh, fresh water and clean air disappear. So with all life disappear. Om oh, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. I have another slide which I'd like to show you. Next, please. If you want to know more about this, please go to cprec.mic.in where you can have, learn much more about various aspects I spoke to you. We are constantly collecting data. I have a whole team of young people who are doing this work. They're also working on the field, protecting forests, restoring sacred groves, restoring water bodies. And there's also a scientific collection of data. Next. Finally, to end, these are the books I wrote, which I had mentioned earlier, Sacred Animals of India, Sacred Plants of India and hinduism and nature
0: thank you very much namaskar thank you so much thank you so much that was very 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 very, very comprehensive it lays the foundation for this whole uh, uh, conference and uh, as you know i've been talking about uh, about this kind of an event for quite some time and i'm so glad that uh, you could make it Uh, I would uh, request uh, Dr. Nagarajji to uh, see if there are any questions that he would like to bring out to uh, ask Nandita Ji.
2: There was one uh, question or uh, suggestion from one of the uh, uh, attendees who was asking from uh, Nandita Krishna Ji, what is her advice to the youth? uh, How to proceed from here?
3: Actually, I saw the question which came up while I was speaking and I said, what can young people do? So I'll tell you what the young people in CPR Environmental Education Center do. Apart from collecting a lot of data and putting it online for everyone to see, they're actually working online. They're working to restore sacred groves, to preserve sacred groves. They're working with tribes and tribal areas, teaching them alternate livelihoods so that they do not encourage poaching of animals, they're restoring sacred water bodies, and so on. So, young people, wherever you are, you don't need me uh, to sit in Chennai and tell you, wherever you are, whatever you have, whatever sources of nature, you, whatever parts of nature you have, which are worth preserving, please take it up, and you take up the preservation of, the whole, of that, if it's a a valve or a water body take up the diesel tank, cleaning it because one rain and you know it will all become muddy and dirty so there's lots that we can do
0: thank you thank you Nantaji you can you. Uh, stay on uh, and watch the balance proceedings as per as your convenience